Well, once again, good morning to you. Happy Sunday. It is good to be with you here today. Just as a reminder, today is the first Sunday of the month, and so we'll be uh, taking part in communion here in just a little while. And uh, if you if you didn't receive elements on your way in or for, if you somehow missed them, uh, if you, if you want to go ahead and raise a hand and uh, we'll have some folks coming around and they can get these uh, little cups and the elements to you and just hang on to them for the moment. We'll get to sharing the Lord's Supper together here in a little while. But for now, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open that up to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24 is where we're going to be spending our time here today. First Samuel is right after the book of Judges, which is where we were last week, and uh, it is right before the book of, you guessed it, Second Samuel. See how that works? That's it's fascinating. Uh, but we're going to be in First Samuel chapter 24. We're continuing our series today called Life in the Wilderness, Life in the Wilderness, Lessons from Ancient Sojourners. And so far we've looked at uh, the, the most ancient sojourners of our time, Adam and Eve, and how they went from living in the garden to life in exile outside of the garden. And then we've looked at the Israelites' 40 years of wandering, their journey through the wilderness, and uh, we spent some time unpacking some things there. And then last week we looked at the life of Gideon and unpacking what what role fear plays in our lives and I gotta say man I, I am I'm just deeply um moved by some of the feedback that I just I heard from last week's message of just, you know, God unearthing some things and kind of processing some fears in our own lives and in our own journeys, and I pray that God would continue to be kind to you and gracious to you and leading you out of, out of fear to live a life of extraordinary faith. That's the hope. And so uh, if you missed any of these messages, they're on our website, they're on iTunes, and you can catch up at your own leisure. But today, I want to look at yet another Old Testament character in the Bible who is well acquainted with life in the wilderness. I mean, it seems like he spent a whole lot of time out in the wilderness, and that is King David. David. Now, before we get into David's story, I, I want to just take a few moments to give us a kind of a, a, a background to the overall arc of Scripture, because I think I think this might serve as helpful information before we dive into today's text. Now, I don't mean for the next few seconds to sound like a seminary course or anything like that, but again, I think taking this sort of bird's eye view of the overall arc of Scripture might be helpful as we unpack today's text. You want to know that the journey of God's people went through several key moments in history where God interacted with his people, led his people in very particular ways. For instance, all the way back in in the beginning of time, specifically in the books of Genesis through Exodus, God uses the patriarchy, the patriarchy of the time, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, all, at several points in the New Testament, uh, or Old Testament, and, and in fact the New Testament, you'll find that God is referred to, the, 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 the God Yahweh is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's because largely from the beginning of time, God used Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as, as the, the forefathers of, of, the, of God's people to lead them through different segments throughout history. And so uh, God would unfold his plans through the line of these three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God's people were largely led from the beginning of time by the patriarchy of this time. After the passing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... The people of God become a nomadic tribe, and they are now led by tribal leaders. And they're a nomadic tribe because God 
if you remember all the way back in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, hey, I'm going to lead your family to this land. I'm going to lead your family. And then that continues on, that promise to lead them into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to lead you through this. And, and they go through uh, Egypt and all of these things. And, and the tribal leaders that God would raise up are guys like Moses and Joshua. And their journey is all documented in Exodus all through Joshua. And these, this, this, these uh, leaders begin to lead this nomadic tribe, if you will, through this journey on the way to the promised land. Now, after the passing of these tribal leaders, God begins to raise up leaders known as judges. But they're not judges in the ways that we would think in our judicial system today. These judges largely served as deliverers that God would use to, to, to deliver the nation of Israel out of the hands of their oppressor. Because you've got to remember, Israel had a habit a bad habit of walking away from God and running into sin. They ran through this cycle of running away from God and running straight into sin. And so God uh, would hand them over to their enemies, to their oppressors. But God, out of his abundant grace and mercy, would use these judges. He would send these judges, guys like Gideon. We talked about Gideon last week to deliver the Israelites out of the hands of their oppressors. And you could see the stories of all 12 judges all throughout the book of Judges. Now, just hang with me, because this is all going somewhere for today's message, okay? Eventually, time passes, as do these judges. All, all 12 of these judges pass away. They serve their time, okay? And, and after all of these judges that God sent to the nation of Israel, the people of God are still struggling to find their way. They're still sorting through their identity. And, and, and so the Israelites, what do they do? They look at their neighboring nations. All the judges are gone now. And they can continue to sort through, like, who are we? Who, like, how are we to navigate the, our, our way through life? And so the, their answer, as they look upon the neighboring nations, is we need what these guys have. We need a king. And so, God, give us a king. You gave us the patriarchy. You gave us uh, tribal leaders. You gave us uh, the, these judges now. We need a king. And this begins the rise and the reign of the monarchy, which spans across the rest of the Old Testament. Now, along with these kings throughout the Old Testament, you had what you call the prophets, which were spokesmen for God who would speak on God's behalf. And one of the key messages of these prophets time and time again was that a better king... A better judge, a better leader, a better father to the tribe of Israel would come and establish a new kind of kingdom here on earth. And that's where we're ushered into the New Testament with Jesus showing up as the better king. And we're not quite there yet. We're in 1 Samuel. And so we got to trail back just a little bit. Now, before we get there, I want to I turn our attention. I want to turn our attention today to, to where the history pages turn to the start and the rise of the monarchy. And I want to look at one of the first kings of Israel, King David. And he is, without a doubt, the most famous king in all of Scripture. In fact, there are several times in the New Testament where Jesus himself refers to himself. You, you see him referring to himself as several different things. One of his titles that he refers to himself as is as the son of David. The son of David. And that's because Jesus, the king of kings, was a descendant of King David. King David was the great, 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 tag on a few more greats, grandfather to Jesus. He literally came from the line of David, the lineage of David. David was a big deal in scripture, you know, the overall arc of history. But 
before there was King David, there was King Saul. Now, Saul was actually the very first king when the nation of Israel cried out for, give us a king, God. God said, okay, here's your guy. It was King Saul, which is unusual because as big of a deal as David was, you would think David was the trailblazer. He, he, he had to be the first king. I mean, he, with how big of a deal he is, he was indeed the first king. No, no, David was Saul's successor. Now, we're not going to get into all the details here. Uh, we don't have time to unpack all of this here this morning. But long story short, Saul didn't like his successor David too much. You see, David at a very young age was growing in notoriety and fame, especially after his epic battle with a giant from Gath named Goliath, right? Whether you grew up in the church or not, you know the story of David and Goliath. That put him on the scene. I mean, that, 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 that little TikTok moment went viral for David, right? Like, he just exploded. I mean, he just, word got out about David. This guy, this little, and the, the, the crazy thing was, this giant of a man was faced, face to face, with this little shepherd boy, David, from out in the middle of nowhere. David comes on the scene and slays this giant, Goliath. And this was well before he was anointed as king. This was, he, he, didn't, he wasn't crowned as king. He, wasn't, he didn't have any name to himself. He was a, a, a no-name, no-reputation, little shepherd boy from out in the middle of nowhere. And so naturally, what began to happen was people started comparing David to Saul. It's like, Saul, what's good, man? Look at David. Like, he is, he is slaying giants, like literally slaying our enemies. And what are you doing? In fact, people would be out in the streets chanting, Saul has struck his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Right, like people are praising David and throwing shade on Saul majorly. Now, men, you know this. The male ego is a fragile thing, okay? The male ego is fragile. So Saul's ego was taking a beating during this time, and Saul wasn't having it. As David was rising in popularity, Saul was growing increasingly jealous. And it got to a point where Saul said, that's it. I'm going to take this little shepherd boy out. He's, I'm, I'm over this. I'm done with this. And so he set out to kill David out of a fit of rage and jealousy. And so what does David do? Well, David does what any smart person does when you have a death threat on your life. You run. You run as far and as quickly as you can. And guess where David ran to? He ran right into the wilderness. He ran straight into the wilderness. As King Saul is on the hunt for David's life, David is hiding out for his life out in the wilderness. And this is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And this morning I've asked Isaac to come up and read today's passage for us. And so, Isaac, why don't you come on up and take us through the story of 1 Samuel chapter 24. And we'll spend a few moments unpacking God's word here together. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told... Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheep's folds by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, behold David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put into your hands, when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with the good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Isaac. Appreciate it. You know, one of the things that we're trying to accomplish through the series, friends, is we want to learn and perceive more clearly what God is up to during those difficult seasons of our lives, often called the wilderness moments or the wilderness seasons of our lives. Because the truth is, when you're out in the wilderness, it can be a little bit discombobulating. It can be a little bit, you know, you could get thrown around for, for a loop of, of not really sure what's happening. I mean, that's, that's kind of the nature of the wilderness experiences. The trials and tribulations of our lives have a way of upending our lives and turning our lives upside down. And one of the things, if, if, if our, our sort of starting premise for the series is God actually does some of his most profound soul-shaping work in the wilderness, 
it would be helpful for us to perceive what he is doing in those moments of discombobulation, you know? And so that's what we're trying to do with the series, is to pull back the veil, pull back the curtain, and say, God, what is it that you're doing in these difficult seasons of my life where it seems like everything is falling apart, where it seems like everything is kind of disintegrating right, right, right underneath me? And so today, what I want to point out is this. One of the things that God often does is God develops our character in the wilderness. God develops our character in the wilderness. There are lots of different things that God does in our wilderness experiences, but one of the key things that God does time and time and time again is he develops our character in the wilderness. I love how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. In other words, we rejoice in our wilderness. We rejoice in the hardships and the trials that we're going through in life. We rejoice in that. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces what? Character. You see, God loves to use the wilderness moments and experiences in our lives to produce godly character, Christ-like character within us. But real quick now, what do I mean by character? What are we talking about when we say character? I think most of us can define it here in this room, but let me just, let me just spitball some ideas your way. Character, I mean the stuff on the inside. Character is the stuff that you're made of in your core. It's what you're made of. It's buried deep inside of who you are. It's who you are when no one is looking. It's who you manifest to be when no one else is around the room to observe you or to snap pictures of you or to watch you. It is who you are at your very core. It's your most authentic self with all its imperfections and flaws, with all its triumphs and failures, with all its highs and lows, with all its beauty marks and bruise marks and all, it is your authentic self. Our character, when all is stripped away, is at the very core of who we are. And God, more than anything in this world, cares about who you are more than what you do. The world communicates what you do matters far more than who you are. In fact, the world insinuates that what you do impacts and influences and defines who you are. The gospel says who you are is defined by the cross. And the cross ought to determine how you ought to live. Jesus namely says, Pick up your cross and carry it and follow me daily. What you do flows out of who you are. Friends, God cares far more about our character development than your career development. We're here as Penn State students. We're trying to figure out what the crap we're doing with our lives. We're like, yeah, like I'm going to this career fair. I'm going to that career fair. I'm going to that interview and this. And, and, and that's good. I, I believe God blesses that. He honors that. But don't think for a moment that God cares far more about your career development than your character development. It is actually the other way around. In the wilderness, it's in the wilderness where God then begins to do that work of shaping and molding our character and developing who we are and who we're becoming. But the question is, how is he doing that? How exactly does God do that? How does he develop our character in the wilderness? Well, that's where we look to the story to help us. The first thing that God does is he convicts us of sin. He convicts us of sin. Oh, come on, Dan. We were having such a good time. Now you got to bring up sin. You know, like party pooper, right? Like, I mean, he, but, but, but hear me, hear me, understand this. And part of the character development of who we are becoming in light of the cross and in light of who Jesus is, part of what God does is he convicts us of sin. If you notice in the story, 
David has the perfect opportunity to take the life of Saul. And yet you see some hesitance in David's actions, right? He, he goes up to Saul, close enough to kill him, close enough where he can, he can hear him breathing, and yet all he does is he gives him a little hem job, a little alteration. He cuts off a corner of his robe. And then in verse 5, we read, And afterward, David's heart struck him. David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What, what is that? What was David experiencing in that moment? Well, I'll tell you. It was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It was a conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus described the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives in this way. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, and when he, he being the Holy Spirit, comes, he will what? Convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, part of what God does to grow our character is he gives us the gift of conviction. He gives us the gift of conviction. Now, when we hear the word conviction, i got to imagine for many of us, the last thing we think about is a gift. Like, the last thing we think about is, like, seeing this as some kind of gift. In fact, we might even cringe a little bit when we think about conviction, because most of us associate conviction with feelings of guilt and shame. We feel convicted. I'm a convict. I feel, I feel some conviction in this moment. We feel like conviction is the act of getting exposed or getting caught red-handed. But you see, conviction isn't really feeling bad about yourself or even getting caught doing something wrong or feeling bad about that. Conviction is really about foresight. Conviction is really about foresight. It's the ability to have some foresight, to be able to see a few steps down the road and see what choosing a life of sin versus a life of righteousness will yield. You see, I believe the reason why David felt some hesitancy and didn't take Saul's life right there and then was because he had some foresight. He knew the temptation that was tugging at his heart. He knew what an easy fix this could be, what a shortcut this could be for him, and what a relief this could be for him. And while he didn't fully fall in and yield to that temptation, his heart was deeply convicted. The text says his heart was struck just based off, to, off of taking this one small step in that direction. You know, to me, that says something about David's character, to feel that level of conviction over something that's seemingly innocent. But in David's mind, he knew even taking a small corner of Saul's robe was wrong. You see, conviction is that ever so subtle pricking of your conscience that says, if you go down this road, here's where this will lead you. If you choose this path, here's where this will take you. And believe it or not, the convictions of the Holy Spirit, the pricking of your conscience, that foresight that I'm talking about, this is a gift from God, friends. This is a gift that God gives to us. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like a gift, but this is truly a gift because conviction is God's way of saying, I don't want to see you go through that pain. I don't want to go see, I don't want to see you go through that path. So let me, let me give you a sneak peek. Let me give you a glimpse into your life, what your life will look like if you choose this path, if you go down this road. And sometimes, sometimes, the only way that God can get us to listen to those convictions is if he brings us out into the wilderness. Because it's in the wilderness where we're fully exposed and fully vulnerable that God can develop our character by speaking to us words of convictions about our sins. 
You know, what strikes me about David's story here is that David was struck again with something that was so seemingly innocent. I forget who said it. It might, might have been C.S. Lewis, but, but he, he talks about, you know, th this one particular theologian talks about getting to a place where you ignore the convictions of the Holy Spirit long enough that you deaden your heart and you callous your heart that no matter how many times the Holy Spirit tries to break into your life and say, don't go down this path because this path is going to lead you to some places that you're going to regret, we become completely deaf and numb to those moments. Friends, that to me is the most frightening place one can find ourselves in. More than the wilderness, more than the hardships of time, and more than the trials of our lives, to get to a place where we ignore the convictions of the Holy Spirit enough, where we become numb to it, where we become callous to it, where we become virtually deaf to it, that is a far worse place to be than in the wilderness. And so, so when, when Jesus says, hey, I'm giving you this gift, won't you receive it? I pray that we would be a people that say, okay, Holy Spirit, come convict me of sin. Would you give me some foresight? Would you give me the ability to see down the path, see down the road? You see, there is a difference between guilt and conviction. It's easy to feel guilty about things that we did bad. We got the guilt thing down pretty good. Most of us don't have to be convinced of feeling guilty. Most of us need to learn to pay attention to the convictions of the Holy Spirit well before the sin overcomes us. You see, conviction comes before the sin is committed. Oftentimes, guilt comes after the sin is committed. Convictions, see how conviction is a gift in that way? Conviction is saying, God, God coming to you, and but the, through the gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit, hey, don't, don't choose that. Don't choose death. Don't, don't choose this path. I've got, I got, I've got life for you. John 10.10, 10, I've come to give you life and life to the full. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And by choosing this, you're choosing death. But by choosing me, you're choosing abundant life. That's conviction. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And oftentimes, we can't hear the convictions of the Holy Spirit unless God strips us of everything. And he brings us out into the wilderness where we've got nothing else to hold on to except him to say, okay, I get it now. I get it. He convicts us of sin. But secondly, he reminds us of his presence. God reminds us of his presence. You know, presence, <laughs> presence is a powerful thing, isn't it? When someone's present with you. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly powerful thing. You know, when, when my kids were younger, they, they would get sick, and, um, you know, one of the things that they would often do is they would crawl into bed with us, you know, when they're not feeling well. You know, they, they would just want to be close to, to mom and dad, or, or they would ask one of us to, 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 to jump into bed with them, lay with them, and just, just be with them, right? They're, they're sick. They, you know, they feel like, man... Mom, Dad, I think I'm dying here. You know, like, can you just please be with me? Just lay with me. I just, I find comfort in your presence. And, you know, and when they ask one of us to lay with them, it's usually mom. You know, it's, I, I don't know. I, they, they say mom's a bunch better cuddler than dad is. In fact, my kids aren't shy about telling us that. You know, even today, they say, Dad, all you do is drape your big fat leg over us. You don't cuddle with us. You know, all you do, and when your leg is on us, we can't breathe. It's not comforting, you know, and it's like, Okay, first of all, let's get the terminology right. It's not fat leg, it's jack leg. Okay, hashtag squat life. And, but but now, listen, that's how I cuddle, son. Okay, so take my leg or leave it. You know, like, but needless to say, needless to say, my kids prefer mom as, as their comfort. But at the end of the day, they just want to know, either mom or dad, 
I want you to, I want to know that you're with me, you're present with me. I remember when I was in college, God was, God was bringing me through a season of, of inner healing to, uh, to a profound degree. I was, I was uh, dealing with all kinds of pain from my, from my past and wounds that I've incurred and experienced in my past. And I was experiencing all these kinds of moments of inner healing that God was bringing into my life. And, and we won't go into all the details of all, all of that. That's for a different message, different time and place. But I remember one particular night, I was with my, my campus pastor, and he sat with me. And, and, and he had his arms around me. He was embracing me as I was literally weeping through pain and grief that I was experiencing in the moment. And that night, my, I, I remember, my pastor didn't say anything to me. He, he didn't offer any words of comfort. He didn't offer any words of wisdom. He just sat with me. And his arms that were wrapped around me let me know that I wasn't hurting alone. Uh, that there was presence there. Presence, friends, is a, is a powerful thing. I don't know if you've ever been with someone who just had their heart broken. And you just present with them, and you cry with them. You know, I, I remember one of, my, uh, one of my professors in seminary, they, um, he lost his son in a tragic accident, rocked his world. I mean, losing a parent is, is difficult. Losing a child is on another level of pain and grief. In moments like that, there's not a whole lot of words of comfort you can offer. But when you're present, there's something deeply powerful that gets communicated just by simply being present. And I can't, he, he would recall stories of friends just coming over to his house to just sit with him and cry with him. It's powerful. It's powerful. And isn't that what Jesus does? Isn't that what we just sang about? Like, not for a moment did I think you were, you've forsaken me. Like, you're, you're in this place. Your presence is here. There's something powerful about presence. And as powerful as a parent's present is to a sick child, as powerful a presence as is a pastor's loving, embracing arm around a hurting congregant member, a congregation member, as, as, as powerful as a friend weeping with another friend over a loss of their child, those pale in comparison to the presence of God in our lives. See, God, in the midst of our wilderness experiences, he reminds us that he is with us. He reminds us of his presence. And David was reminded that God was present with him. Did you know that David is one of the rare and unique characters in the Bible where we have an extraordinary glimpse into his inner life, into his heart? Because we actually have his journal entries in our possession. It's called the Book of Psalms. We have the book of Psalms that, that serve as actual documentation of what David was going through internally as he was experiencing the wilderness externally. Now, you don't need to turn there, but if you were to read through Psalm 57, you would know exactly what he was processing in that cave on that day all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Listen to a little bit of what he prays in his journal entry on that day in Psalm 57. He says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass. I cry out to God most high, 
to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Can you imagine that? Like in the midst of hiding out in the cave, hiding out for his life, David is like, there is, like, you have a purpose for me in this moment. How many times do we find ourselves in wilderness experiences and we're like, God, are you doing anything? What is, what is the purpose of this? David was like, there is purpose in this for me. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame with shame him who tramples on me. He's talking about Saul and his, and his army of men. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David goes on for another eight verses or so talking about how good God's presence is and how faithful he is in this moment. Now, you've got to remember, he is writing this in a cave while hiding out for his dear life. And you want to know the crazy thing? This isn't the first and last time that David went through a life-threatening wilderness experience like this. Saul, throughout the course of his, his kingship, attempts to ki kill David several different times. Over and over again, Saul puts out an attempt to kill David, this David who, who, who seems to be a threat to, to Saul. Now, it doesn't end there. As if things, got, as if things could go from, from, from bad to worse, it indeed does, because all, David, once David becomes king, his son then tries to murder him on a number of different occasions. And guess where he ends up every single time? In the wilderness. He runs out into the wilderness, and God does some deep and profound things there. And for every wilderness experience that David has, David prays a very similar prayer to that of Psalm 57. In the midst of incredible turmoil, David looks up and acknowledges God's goodness and his presence in his life. It's all throughout the book of Psalms. I mean, you, you could just read through the different journal entries of David where he looks up to the skies and he says, God, in you I take refuge. Lord, in you I take comfort. You see, you got to understand, David wasn't just having one bad day with Saul here. He wasn't just having a tough day at work or feeling particularly overwhelmed by his workload. David underwent extended seasons, long periods of his life where his life was threatened. Enemies surrounded him. Loved ones betrayed him. And you want to know what got him through it all? It was the constant reminder that God was with him through it all. That God was indeed walking with him through it all. And friends, I believe, I believe that God wants to remind you, he wants to remind me, he wants to remind us that no matter what wilderness experience we might be going through, no matter how hard life might get, no matter how overwhelmed we might feel at any given moment, God's presence is not going anywhere. His presence is not budging in any way. He is with us in the wilderness, in the thick of it, through it all. And one of the ways that God makes that so evidently clear is through the sending of his son, Jesus. If there was any doubt in our minds that God was with us, you only need to look upon Jesus. Jesus is, is God with skin on. He is the one who came to dwell amongst us and to make his home amongst us, to remind us that, that we have a God in heaven who is always with us, Emmanuel, God who never forsakes us. And he showed us the extent of his love and faithfulness and goodness by going to the cross and giving his life for you and for me so that nothing might stand in the way of God's presence breaking through into our lives. 
You see, it's because God broke his body that God's presence is able to break into our lives. And today we get to celebrate that incredible news by taking communion together. And so at this time, I'm going to invite the worship team.